name is Duke Bendix. I too am on staff here at Grace Covenant and uh, certainly want to wish you all a happy new year coming up. It's always a kind of an in-between time where you anticipate what the year is going to be. Uh, please be sure that you come this Sunday. Pastor Jim Critcher is going to be ministering and oftentimes, well, in fact, for the last several years, he's kind of used the first service or early on in the month of January to give a prophetic perspective on what, what lies ahead for us. And oftentimes what he does is he gives, he ministers a word that really is equipping for what to look forward to in the Lord for the year to come. And I know he's preparing that word for us this Sunday. He is going to be ministering in each of the services. And I trust that you will uh, prayerfully just come ready to hear what it is that God is wanting to show us and what he's wanting to prepare in us for being as fruitful and being as fulfilled as we can be as his people in 2017. It's kind of in that vein that I want to I want to just make some remarks and, and do instruct us a little bit here this evening. Uh, I have been, my wife and I have been for the last few years really looking at what does it mean to walk as a disciple of Jesus Christ? That discipleship is, um, is one of those things that I think we might have a lot of different ways that we understand what a disciple is. And one of the things that, that Kathy and I have really been looking at is, you know, what does it look like for us to be engaged with Christ in our day-to-day -day living as much as possible? And uh, I, w I went back here a few months ago and was looking at what, what are the words that are translated disciple in the New Testament. And I, I won't stutter through the Greek for you, but the three words basically have to do, the, the most commonly used word for disciple is a follower, somebody who simply follows. The second most commonly used word for a disciple is someone who is taught or who is a learner. And the third is the word that we would, uh, we use, we draw it almost, to, it, it's mimeomai. Like mimeograph, it is to mimic or to imitate. And that is the third word that is commonly used uh, for what a disciple is. So I, I have been asking myself, and what does it look like? I've kind of taken all three of those meanings and sort of attached them to one another. That as I follow Christ, I follow him in order that I might learn from him. And as I learn from him, I'm made more into his image. I become more of an imitator of him. That all three of those words are heading in the same direction. They're all focusing on the same thing, and they're all addressing, at, uh, the working to create something in us that desires Jesus Christ more than anything else. It's part of what uh, Tiff was, Tiffany was saying in her exhortation today as, as we were in, in the worship time. Um, Jesus said to the here's how he described what a disciple is. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you stay in the word, well, 
in order to be in the word, I've got to be in some kind of proximity to Jesus, following him into things, hearing what he has to say. And then he goes on to say, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth. So the learning we're doing is not learning about Jesus, but it is learning from him in the way the disciples did that, that addresses our life over and over and over and over again with truth. And then what he says, and the truth will set you free. Freedom, it, freedom folks, is a fundamental re-altering of who and how we are. Uh, we are never, we are going to, one day we are going to stand before the, in, in, the, in the, the place of heaven itself and we are going to look back on this life, this, this veil that we've lived behind all these years and the, year, the few years we have as, as, as people who are alive in this world. And we are probably going to, in, in one sense, be staggered at how dull and how dark things really were. I, I was reading a book here recently on, uh, by Larry Crabb, and he was saying one of the fundamental things that causes people to try to compensate for life is just how painful life is on the whole. And if it isn't painful in your life, you don't have to look around very far to find real pain encountering the lives of the people you know. And the, the point here is saying, folks, as disciples or as believers in Jesus Christ, we have an opportunity and we have a responsibility to live and draw from as much of the life of, of the reality of Christ as we can. Paul put it this way. He said, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, I count everything else as loss. Not for the surpassing benefit of being fruitful, although that's important. Not for the surpassing uh, uh, power of seeing deliverance happen in my life, but for the surpassing worth of simply knowing Jesus Christ. And I, I'm saying that to let that settle in because I think that's the kind of thing that sort of puts a plumb bob alongside of our lives. I, I, when I was pastoring the little congregation in, in Pennsylvania some years ago, you know what a, a plumb bob is a tool that you can get at, at Lowe's and basically, it's just a brass weight with a point on it and a string attached. And it's used by masons, and to, it gives you, it, it tells you what's plumb. I hung it from the podium in front of the church because I said, this is the standard. We want to evaluate our lives and assess ourselves on the basis of what is the truth that God is saying. What does the Bible say we are to value? Do we value what we're supposed to value? And we live in a culture where we are so pulled in, in the direction of valuing other things that my hope is that in messages like this one and what you hear on Sundays and what you're reading with your Bible when you read it every day. every day, okay, when you read it every day, good, you're out there, all right, we can be a little interactive here tonight, we don't have to be real formal uh, the, the ushers won't throw anybody out, I don't think. But what we want to be doing is making sure that we're lining our values, lining our desires up with what Scripture tells us 
are important to have as values and desires. And, and this is what Paul is holding out here. He says, I, for the value or for the worth of knowing Christ, everything else is lost. So tonight I want to explore <clears throat> something that I've learned and continue to learn, and it kind of begins with this premise. Discipleship proceeds from encounter. Don't, don't, I'm, I'm not going to go deep on this here. Just understand what I'm saying. Discipleship proceeds from encounter. Say that with me. Discipleship proceeds from encounter. Insofar as I have been encountered by Christ, I'm able to follow him as a disciple. Insofar as I've been encountered by Christ, I can follow him as a disciple. In other words, what that's saying to part is there's some things that need to be encountered in us. You know, uh, that's exactly what the decrease-increase thing we were talking about was about. There's some things that need to be encountered, but the thing of it is, as we'll see tonight, there's no way any of us can decrease a thing in our lives because there's nothing in us that's motivated to decrease. In fact, we've spent a lifetime training ourselves to elbow ourselves to the front of the line. We've literally cultivated a deep-set habit that was rooted in the seed of Adam in us to begin with of saying, decrease? I don't have near enough increase to be talking about decrease. So there's some things that need to be encountered in our lives so that change can occur. My discipleship proceeds from encounter. Philippians 3.3. This is the same context Paul said a moment ago, a little later, is where he says that for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, I count everything else as a loss. Here's the declaration he makes. And this is a declaration, not a description. For we are the circumcision, Philippians 3.3, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. Now, Paul is saying some things. What he's, what he's cautioning the Philippians about, a little, bit of, a, little, a little bit of context, is he's basically saying, you be aware of the Judaizers. The Judaizers were people who were going into newly established churches, and they were basically holding out the notion or the, the teaching, the biblical premise, that in order to follow Christ, you had to first become a Jew. In other words, if you were a Gentile, if you were going to follow Jesus Christ, you had to be circumcised. There had to be a cutting away of the flesh to identify you as being part of the family of God. Paul is saying, same thing he was saying to the Galatians, same issue. But he was warning the Philippians and he says, folks, we are the circumcision. We are a people cut apart. We are a people who've been cut upon. We have encountered the living God. And he goes on in Colossians and says this, in Colossians, uh, the second chapter, 11 through 12. He said, we are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful work of God. 
Now, the reason I, I'm going to talk about these is, folks, each of these statements testify and set out something that should, if we call ourselves by the name of Jesus Christ, these are to have encountered our lives. They're to be something that works so as to make a difference in our lives. We do not live as Christians on the basis of principle. We do not live primarily on the basis of mechanics. Principle, and, and you will find nobody who loves to talk about principles and mechanics any more than I do, but that is not where life springs from. That's what you use to get the life to do and applied in the ways that you need to have it applied. We are the circumcision. Has the, has the, has the knife of, of Christ, wielded by Christ, gone into your heart so as to cut away things that make you dull to the things of God? Have you in water baptism, have you been baptized in water? Because that's what the analogy is being made here to, is that when we step into the waters of baptism, we are submitting ourselves to the cutting hand of Jesus Christ working in us to cut away the flesh and to allow us to live in the life and liberty of Christ. He goes on to say, for we are those who worship by the Spirit of God. Worship is a response. Worship is supposed to spring forth as a response to the life of Christ in us. I always come away from ministry times like this wondering, did that communicate? So if any of you want to wave a hand silently or, you know, just give me a little zen one hand clapping or, you know, I, something to just, there, I, I, don't need a, I don't need a Pentecostal response, but just a, a quiet nod of the head. Yes, I think I understand that. Or, or even, even if I'm totally blowing by you like a, huh? I mean, that would help because I know I'm not getting quiet. I haven't quite made my point yet. So, all right. Well, I, I don't, I, I'm not inviting a lot of necessarily loud response. I just want to know this is so important because this is what we are, people. This is what makes us distinctive. Our worship is to rise up out of a response to the reality of the life of God that we don't just experience once in a while. We're to be finding that reality every day. Every day. And what I want to hear, what I'm doing tonight is simply encouraging that process in you. And if it's something that you maybe have missed out on or something that is not a part of your day-to-day -day living, then take this as something the Holy Spirit is saying to you and saying, hey, if you'll ask me, I'll open this up to you. Pause along the way. Forget it. If, if this is where worship is to rise out of the life I'm experiencing with God, wow, never thought of that. I don't know that that's going on in my life. Forget the rest of my message. Focus on that. Take that away for tonight. That, that's what I'm trying to do. I, I kind of lay out a lot of things as sort of a way of saying, what is the Spirit of God saying? We're to be people who worship in response to the light of God. He goes on to say, <coughs> excuse me. He goes on to say that we are to be we are to be those who glory in Christ Jesus. 
The light of God's own glory has broken in upon us and made us new. The light of God's glory is to work in such a way as to capture us. Paul described it this way. He said, I have been captured out of my captivity. I mean, think about it. We are captive slaves of sin. Jesus Christ comes in. He snaps us up out of, and now we are captured by him. And taken up out of our captivity. So now, as Paul says in the second Corinthians in the third chapter, he says, I march in the triumph of Christ. We hear that as, well, that's Christ's great victory march. No, 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 no. Paul regarded himself, the triumph was something every Corinthian would have known. It was when the emperor, after a conquering victory over a whole nation, made his entry into Rome in a chariot, followed by all the slaves they had captured out of that, that, that nation. And at the end of that group, maybe with a noose around his neck, was one slave who, when they got to where, when it all got done, he was going to be executed. Paul said, I am that one. I am marching in the triumph of Christ. It's not a Roman legion general up there. It is Jesus Christ, and we are his captives, and we have been captured by his glory, and we are being led into every good thing that he has appointed. And sometimes those good things are very costly to us. We glory in Christ Jesus. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the same language as Genesis, as Genesis 1. Let the light, let, light, let there be light. The Holy Spirit found you in your darkness. And the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ caused light to burst forth in our spirit. And now that's the animating light. That is the guiding light. That is the light of life that is to burn and grow more intense and to be, to be fueled and to be cultivated and to be, that, that we're to keep alive within us and to live by and to be defined by. We're to be the children of light in a dark world. And we are those who put no confidence in the flesh. Having been encountered with the reality of God's life in Christ, we don't rely on flesh. We're to have no connection or confidence in flesh and what it can produce or take pride in it. Now, here's what I want us to note about flesh. The flesh is not just those things that I desire that are wrong. Or the things that I lust after, driven by the appetites of my body or perversity of my mind. Normally when we hear they're in the flesh, that's a great word for saying they're sinning. That guy's doing something he shouldn't be. He's looking at something he shouldn't be looking at. Uh, that, that, that woman is engaged in an emotional tie she shouldn't be in. That's their living in the flesh. But the New Testament, here we get. Now, I said we, we needed some encounter. We needed some correction. The flesh is the entire orientation we all have to live life on our terms. To live life in our strengths. 
to live life by our own understanding with a view to satisfying our desires and accomplishing our plans. The system of the flesh is summed up, and this, this, some of you may never even heard of this guy, is summed up in a song by Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. But more, much more than this, I did it my way. That is the flesh. And what's so insidious about it and why we have to live in the light and why Jesus said, if you are my disciples, you'll stay in my word and the word will show you the truth and the truth will set you free is because the flesh can be as well motivated as anything you've got going. Martha served Jesus and the disciples in the flesh. And when you look at it, we can't talk about it here, maybe another time, but oftentimes the flesh is empowered and upheld and animated by the idols we've created for our own self-protection. We're heavily invested in fleshly things. And looking at the motivations and the intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4, is the work of the Word of God, dividing between soul and spirit. The source, the wellspring of our lives is that which God has worked in our lives. The wellspring, the source. Think of it as an artesian well, a well that has natural pressure underneath it and bubbles up through the ground and runs out in streams in a variety of different directions. That's the living water Jesus is describing. When we come to know him, how do you measure your life except to say, does my life characterize as a natural outflowing of the water of life that waters not only my soul, but the people around me. That's not condemning. Folks, that's what we ought to be shooting for. That's what we ought to be asking God for every day of our lives. And along with the decrease and increase thing, saying, Lord, what am I doing that blocks the well? What rocks am I rolling on this thing? Because my wife's telling me there ain't a lot of water coming out of that well today. You, you see what I'm saying? In other words, we've got, to be, we, we've got to be engaged in the process of letting God encounter our lives. From this source, we are to live, serve, labor, and rest. Understand, God encounters our lives in different ways at different times to move us into more comp a more complete realization of what he intends for us. We're continually in the process of having opportunity to be encountered by God. That bad circumstance may be a prize-winning opportunity for the encounter with God. I was thinking about this in my own, in my own life growing up. This is a little uh, magical history tour here. When was I saved? I've asked myself this question because I'm fascinated by it. When, when, did I, when was I saved? Was it in the third grade when Baptist ladies came and on Friday afternoon were given a room, a classroom in our elementary school 
so that any of the kids who wanted to stay after school on Friday could come down and get Bible studies. And these, these, these ladies, they were equipped with the latest technology. It's called a flannel board. And a flannel board was a board with flannel on it. And what it would do is you could do little cutouts like a tomb with a stone rolled over and put it on the thing. Or you could cut out disciples sitting with Jesus. Or, you know, these kinds of things. I mean, this was, this was, I mean, there it was. Wow. And they talked about Jesus and they talked about the gospel and they taught us songs. One of my favorite was uh, two of them that we would sing, I think, every time we were together uh, was uh, The Old Rugged Cross and uh, Onward Christian Soldiers. The Old Rugged Cross was especially cool because it had this line, imagine this to a third grader, until my trophies at last I lay down. The only trophies I knew of were my older cousin's bowling trophies. So I had this picture in my mind of laying these bowling trophies down. I thought, well, okay, till my trophies at last I lay down, there you go. That was third grade. But something began to give me an understanding and an awareness. There was an encounter going on. Then, zip. Flash forward to my sophomore year in college. Guy comes up to me. I'm on the quad, spring day, Oregon State University. Beautiful quad out there. Guy comes up who was wilder than a March hare. And he starts testifying to me about how God had delivered him from his drug usage. And he'd really been delivered. I mean, seriously, he, God had really moved powerfully in his life. And God needed to move powerfully in his life. One of the things you always have to look at is sometimes you can have a testimony. You can give your testimony to somebody and you can give all the details and everything. And the guy, your test, the person you're testifying, say, you know what? You really did need to come to Jesus Christ. <laughs> he was in that kind of a category. But anyway, he got through his testimony and he said, he said, Duke, he, and we knew each other. We'd met each other at the Friday night dances, and we'd, you know, hung out together. And he it just, it, that'd give you an impression of where I was. But he said, he said, he said, Duke, do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? Well, I immediately went back to my third grade teaching. And I said, yeah. I, I said, yeah. And so he led me in a prayer. And I asked Jesus into my heart. And for one week, I hung out with the Christians. And then the following Sunday, a week later, I had just enough money in my pocket to buy a lid of marijuana, an ounce, and I felt very clearly like the Lord was saying, it's Spirit of God, encountering my life, put it on the in remembrance of him table up at the front of church. I got up, I walked out of the church and went and bought the lid of marijuana. Well, so now that's why you say you really needed Jesus Christ. <laughs> You're a lying, cheating. I mean, you don't follow through on your commitments. I, but my point is, when do you, when are you saved? So a few months later, my life has crashed and burned because the Holy Spirit has just been, my wife says, sent the dogs of heaven after me. 
And I'm walking the streets of Corvallis, Oregon at three in the morning, rain soaked wet, saying to God, Lord, I just, the peace, my life is in pieces. I'm giving the pieces to you. And if you can make anything of them, it's yours. But then a couple of months later, and in this grungy house surrounded by Fillmore rock concert, and you wouldn't know what that was, but (laughs) posters, grungy floor, bowing before Christ and saying, oh God, and having him encounter me in such a way that there wasn't any place, I couldn't have been under the house and gotten any lower. But there was something that began to dawn on my life. I was being encountered by God in all those things. And I I recount all of this because you know what? You probably have a photo album of God encountering your life. Now, you may not, I hope you haven't got one like mine. But you've got one. And it's good to remember, what has God done? How has he encountered you? Because in those encounters, he was drawing you to himself and is, in my case, drawing me to a living faith in Jesus Christ. I was becoming the circumcision. I was becoming one who worshipped from the Spirit of God, who glorified in Jesus Christ because something of Christ had encountered my life. And I wasn't there yet, but I was heading in the direction of putting no confidence in the flesh, really seeing the flesh for what it was. When we are encountered by the good news of salvation, when we come to truly believe that message and receive forgiveness and be established in Christ's righteousness, we are a believer, but we are not yet a disciple. And I'm going to tread maybe on some thin ice here. But quite honestly, disciple, believer, Christian, someone who's saved, they've all become equivalent to the same thing, and they're not. I can be a believer, but not be a disciple. Saving grace makes it possible for us to become disciples, but it doesn't make us disciples. Being able to follow Jesus and actually following him are not the same thing. We must choose to follow in order to learn and to be conformed to his image. We must choose to be a disciple, a choice we will probably need to make more than once in our lifetime. There are not two kinds of Christians or two Christian lifestyle options to choose between being a believer or being a disciple. That's never the intention. I'm not differentiating between the two because I'm saying that all you really radical types out there, you want to sign up to be a disciple. The rest of you, go back to sleep, you know, just... That, that's, not what, that's not what it is at all. Too often, however, this is the way those who believe in Christ end up living. Well, I'm saved. I'm a believer. I hold to the truth. I may even read my Bible every day. But you know what? I'm really not looking to be encountered by the living God. In fact, push comes to shove, I'd really rather pass on the encounters. 
And I just want to say tonight, no, 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 no. God's giving us, he saved us that we might, and, 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 a, and a properly, a right-born believer steps immediately, or not if not immediately, quite soon thereafter into an understanding of what it is to choose to be a disciple. But I want to say here too, there can be a process. Peter's, Peter's experience in New Testament is, describes what I'm trying to picture here. Scripture gives us a glimpse of something of a timeline or a path of transition that marked out the process of Peter becoming a disciple. In the first chapter of John, you have Jesus down on the Jordan River, well south of Galilee, baptizing, taught, at least there with John's, John the Baptist people, being he himself was baptized in that setting. And Andrew, Peter's brother, meets, follows Jesus home one day or follows him to where he was staying and Jesus invites him in and from that encounter goes back to Peter and he says, Peter, we found the Messiah. Now, we don't have any idea what went on in Andrew's life. But Peter goes with him and he no sooner walks in the door and Jesus gives a word of knowledge and changes his name. Simon, son of John, you are now Cephas the rock, Peter. Well, okay. A little while later in Luke, the fifth chapter, we have Peter inviting Jesus home in Capernaum to his house for lunch after the time in the, in the synagogue, a Saturday lunch. And when he goes in there, he's healed somebody in the synagogue. Obviously, Peter has seen that. We don't know how much other activity Peter has seen. But when Jesus goes into Peter's home, his mother-in-law is sick in the bedroom. And Jesus goes in, and one, one test says he commands the spirit to come out of her. In another, he reaches down and takes the dear woman's hand and simply raises her up. And she's healed. And she, I mean, she's healed. She starts cooking. She goes in and prepares the meal. Peter was right there, saw that. A few days later, Jesus is out. He's ministering to a large crowd like he often did. Probably the same message he gave or roughly of the Sermon on the Mount. He's standing there. The crowd's pressing in on him. He's on the shore. He looks over at Peter and he said, hey, uh, push your boat out a ways from the shore because they're pressing in on me. He sits in the bow of the boat and he begins to speak using a natural uh, magnifying sound of his voice bouncing off the water and being able to be magnified to the crowd. He gets done, and where's Peter? He's in the boat listening. When he gets done, he said, Peter, he said, uh, push out into the deep. Throw your nets over. Peter says, Phew, we're up all night fishing, no, no fish, but okay, because you're the rabbi, we'll do it. He goes out, and in obedience to something he didn't have any faith at all would do anything, he puts his nets over the edge of the boat, and suddenly the nets are bursting with fish. He signals to John at James to come out, his partners, they come out, they do the same thing, and they literally fill their boats up with fish until they're beginning to sink. I mean, those babies are that far up the edge above the water. They are sinking with fish. And listen to Peter's response. When Simon Peter saw it, Luke 5, 8 and 9, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. 
For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish. There is something about the manifestation of God's nature in Christ. There's something about the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ that undoes us. That deeply convicts with a sense of profound unworthiness and brings us to a humility that is absolutely essential. To follow Jesus Christ, we have to be, I've been using the train, looked up the, we have to be uncoupled from what we have been following. Does it mean you have to be involved in drugs to be uncoupled? Heavens no. Peter was an honest, he was just a fisherman. But there was something in his soul that was being uncoupled by his perception and by his encounter with the glory and the holiness and the wonder and the power and the awesomeness of this Jesus whom up to that point, yeah, he'd seen him heal, he'd heard him preach, he'd done all kinds of things, but it hadn't landed. And God encountered him in a way that it uncoupled him from something and it says, and when, the, when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Yeah. Biggest, biggest economic windfall I'm sure his business had ever seen up to that point. Two large boats filled with fish. This was, I mean, this was, an, this was the year's income probably. I don't know. The point is, and again, please hear me. They didn't leave it because they saw they needed to leave it. They left it because they saw something of greater value they were going after. When the Lord uncouples us and says, follow me, he does so not with a view of trying to say, now go back and make sure you leave that behind and you disown that and give that away and quit that. And all. That isn't it at all. See, that's the flesh. When we're uncoupled in this way, we see something of greater worth. For the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. I have forsaken all things and count them as loss. You see this? Now, this is how we begin to follow as a disciple. This is the kind of encounter. Like Peter, to follow Christ requires us to be undone, uncoupled from the things that hold us to the life we know that blind us to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And you know what? All of this kind of undoing, uh, uncoupling us from what we're doing, opening our eyes, it may begin with a simple act of obedience. Throw your net over the side. Yeah, but I know there's nothing there. I've been fishing these waters for a long time. Look, we fished all night. That's when the fish are coming. Throw your net over the side. And it set up an opportunity for encounter that couldn't have been set up any other way. I'm just going to close with, it with some questions here. A few questions, very briefly. Is there something in God that God is giving you, or is there something, I, let me rephrase it, is there something God is giving you a desire for 
that you sense you may be right on the threshold of attaining or coming into. I'm talking about a job opportunity necessarily or anything like that. Something in your spirit. Something at boiling or stirring in the waters of the life of in your spirit. Is there something you sense that God may want to draw you in the words of C.S. Lewis in the last battle further up and further in to what he has for us? Second question. Is there something God is asking you to do to be obedient in that may bring about a far greater outcome than you could ever imagine? I know what it's like. I mean, I told you. I know exactly what it's like to hang on to what I think is important in that moment. Peter wasn't looking for a new dimension of life when he put the net over the side and into the water. Yet his obedience uh, ended up having an undoing or a de-uncoupling effect in him and brought him into a new path. And third, th third question, have you resisted laying down things because it seemed too hard? It seemed like too much. I'm referring here to physical things, time-related things, things that you focus on, things that you just, if you were to ever get quiet, and one of the reasons we don't get quiet is because the Holy Spirit will always say, how about, how about no social media for a while? You know, and we hear the joke as you bind that, well, get behind me, Satan. But, but the, the point is, is that there are some things we just, like I said, we don't want to hear. Following Christ does at times seem hard, and Jesus' own words indicate this. He who loses his life finds it, but he who holds on to his life loses it. Seems difficult until you try it in faith. Got a five-day fast coming up. Okay, five-day fast. Some of you are looking at that and saying, put a gun to my head and end it all right now. I'm not interested in fasting for five days. Okay, I got that. Try one. I remember the first day I fast, first time I ever fasted for one day. Oh, I've got worse memories of that than my open-heart surgery. Let's put it that way. I mean, it's, uh, it was painful. G.K. Chesterton said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. I just want to commend us tonight as we set out on this new year. Can you believe God wants to encounter your life? Uncouple you from some things so that you can follow him as you never have before. And in following him, learn from him. And in learning the truth from him, being changed and becoming more like Jesus Christ.